As I just mentioned, our second reading this morning comes from the Old Testament book of 1 Kings, chapter 19, beginning with verse 1. Let us listen for and hear God's holy word. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so, many, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid. He got up and fled for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. He left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat under a solitary broom tree. He asked that he might die. It is enough now, Lord, O Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the broom tree and fell asleep. Suddenly, an angel touched him and said to him, get up and eat. He looked, and there at his head was a cake, a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came a second time, touched him and said, get up and eat. Otherwise, the journey will be too much for you. He got up and ate and drank. Then he went in the strength of that, of that, uh, he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. At that place, he came to a cave and spent the night there. Then the word of the Lord came to him saying, what are you doing here, Elijah? He answered, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. He said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now there was a great wind so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of sheer silence. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Then there came a voice to him that said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He answered, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. Then the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael as king over Aram. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. May your good news come, O Lord, not only in the word spoken, but in and through the power of your Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Amen. As you might imagine, growing up the oldest of four kids has had, has had its ups and downs. On one hand, there was always someone to throw a baseball around with or to talk about how mean our parents were being 
or even to pick on or to wrestle with. But on the other hand, there was competition, at least in my eyes, for a lot of things in our family, ranging from who got to decide what television show we were going to watch to getting the attention of our parents. Don't get me wrong, I love my brothers and my sister and cannot imagine growing, out, growing up without each one of them in my life. But while I'm able to say that today, that's not always been the case. Those of you who are eldest children likely know what I'm talking about. There always seems, seemed to be that nagging question in the back of my head. How much greater would my life have been if I were an only child? Of course, this question was always answered with superficial and selfish responses like, think of all the extra money my parents would have to spend on me. I would have whatever I wanted. I would never get blamed for something that my brother did. My parents would focus only on me. And I realize now that last one would have been terrible. My brothers have always done a great job of creating distractions that allowed me to get away with things that I didn't always want my parents to find out about. And, but those are stories for a different sermon. From what I remember, when I was younger, the dream of being an only child danced around in my head. And I think this dream and my frustration with it not being the reality is best illustrated by a story my mom likes to tell, usually to embarrass me, of when life became too much for me to handle at the ripe old age of four. My youngest brother, Paul, had just been born and brought home from the hospital, and I was mad. First of all, for nine months, both my parents had been promising me a baby sister, and it became obvious very quickly that a sister he was not. Secondly, and again, those of you who are eldest know, when a new sibling is brought home, everyone is focused on the baby. And if you're lucky, you're given a token new toy that I guess is supposed to distract you from the reality that everything, and I mean everything, is completely about the new baby. So I guess while I was off playing with my stupid new space shuttle, in the lonely confines of my room for what, in my four-year-old world, seemed like hours on end, my frustration began to simmer. For a while, I was able to stave it off, stave off any outward expressions that I was not happy. I bit my tongue while all the while the parents, the adults, were doting over this new baby continuously. But as you might imagine, everything came to a head. One morning, a few days into Paul's new place in the family as another black hole that sucked away my parents' affection that should have been showered on me, the little prince had a dirty diaper that needed to be changed. And my mom, with blatant disregard for the sensitive emotional state that I was in, asked if I could help by retrieving a new diaper in the box of baby wipes from the back bedroom and bring it out to her. As I walked to the room to get the supplies, my mind was spinning. And by this point, I could not be held responsible for my actions. <laughs> As the story goes, I got to my mom and my new little brother with a diaper and baby wipes in hand, 
and just stopped and glared at her straight in the eye. Having had enough, I threw the supplies up in the air and yelled, am I the only one that ever does anything around here? (laughs) My mother, who by this point in the story usually has tears streaming down her face from laughter, says that I stormed off to my room to be by myself and probably to play with that really cool new space shuttle that I got as a toy. Like a four-year-old, frustrated with the injustices of life, we find Elijah in this morning's passage alone and feeling as though the world and God are out to get him. And we hear him utter like a four-year-old child, Am I the only one who ever does anything around here? In the chapter just before ours this morning is the famous story of Elijah on Mount Carmel going toe-to-toe with 450 prophets of Baal. And you might remember Elijah challenges them to call on the name of their god, Baal, to set fire to a mound of sticks to sacrifice a bull. But after hours of chanting and dancing around the pile, Baal does not respond. Elijah then commanded the people to drench his pile with 16 jars of water, soaking the wood and filling the trenches that he had dug around the offering. Then he calls on the name of God, and we're told that the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, the wood, the stones, and the dust and even licked up the water that was in the trench. Elijah's God, the God of Israel, prevails and wins back the hearts of the many who had turned away. And if that were not enough, Elijah then prophesies that the severe drought that had quenched the land will end. And at that, the heavens grew black with clouds and the wind, and there was heavy rain. So when we pick up with Elijah here in chapter 19, he's just conquered the prophets of Baal and turned the hearts of the people back to God and ended a drought that had been compromising the health and well-being of God's people. Elijah should be on top of the world, right? Well, not exactly. He's running for his life from Jezebel, the powerful Baal-worshipping wife of King Ahab. She has sent a messenger to kill him because he's threatening her power and her beliefs. Elijah's fear drives him deep into the wilderness to sit under a solitary broom tree. He's alone, and he's scared for his life, and he's just worn out. It's as if the heavy rain that fell from the heavens and drenched the earth did nothing for the spiritual drought that now consumes Elijah's soul. Elijah's wandering in the wilderness is, I think, meant to remind each one of us of the several other instances of wilderness wandering that we read about in the Bible. Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days, and the Israelites wandering through the wilderness for 40 years, and even Moses, who we should remember also complained to the Lord in the wilderness. Both Elijah And Moses complained that their burdens are too heavy for them to bear alone. And both asked the Lord to let them die. Both find themselves lost in the wilderness, wilderness, both spiritually empty and emotionally dry. 
In an attempt to quench the drought of Elijah's faith, God sends a messenger who tells Elijah to travel 40 days to Mount Horeb, which is significant because Mount Horeb is also known as Mount Sinai, the mountain where Moses encounters God. Elijah, upon reaching the mountain, finds a cave, and we know the rest of the story. God asks Elijah, why are you here? And Elijah answers, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left. And now they're seeking to take my life. The messenger reappears and tells Elijah, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. There's then a great wind so strong that it splits the mountains and breaks the rocks, but the Lord is not in the wind. Then an earthquake, but the Lord is not in the earthquake. And then a fire, but there's still no God. And then a sound of sheer silence. Elijah, in the silence, is in the presence of God but even that seems to leave him unchanged. He's just had the proverbial mountaintop experience, and yet Elijah remains in the dry spiritual drought that's parched his soul. The appearance of of the God of all creation described in the wind and the earthquake and the fire has apparently made no difference. Elijah's spiritual drought continues even after being asked a second time by God, why are you here, Elijah? Elijah gives the same, why am I the only one who ever does anything around here answer? I imagine many of us here this morning understand what Elijah is going through. Many of us have found ourselves in the wilderness gasping for water. Some of us might even be there right now. Because no matter how many mountaintop experiences we find ourselves in, we remain stuck in the darkness of a cave. A few years ago, I attended a seminar led by Kenda Creasy-Dean, who was one of my professors when I was at Princeton Seminary. In the seminar called The God Barren Life, she explained that in the course of our faith development from its infant stages to a fully matured state, it's only natural that we spend time in the wilderness dealing with spiritual drought. We often make the mistake of thinking that we experience God only on the mountaintops and never in the valleys. She told us to think of it in terms of a lung inhaling and exhaling. She called it the two lungs of spirituality. Now hang in here because I'm going to start using some Greek words, but I think it's worth it. In theology, we call it cataphatic and apophatic. Cataphatic theology is describing God in the positive. In other words, describing God by saying what God is. Love, all-knowing, ever-present, creator, etc. Apophatic theology is describing God by saying what God is not. It's like saying that we, can, we cannot know what God is 
because we ourselves are not God. We are human. We're evil. We're sinful. We're depraved. God is none of those things. So according to Dean, in terms of our individual journeys of faith, a positive cataphatic state, in a positive cataphatic state, we are are full spiritually, like a lung that's full of a deep breath. In a negative or apathetic state, we're spiritually empty, like a lung that's just exhaled that large, deep breath. Our faith, like lungs, must inhale and exhale in order to function correctly and to keep growing and to keep changing. If we look at our faith in terms of the cataphatic, we might see the mountaintop experiences. The opposite apophatic state might be the caves and the wilderness and the deserts. We might experience our faith cataphatically through light and fullness or presence. Or we might experience our faith in darkness or emptiness or absence. Our faith might be understood in the full resurrection of Christ, or it might be experienced in the emptiness of the tomb. Like Elijah, not experiencing God in the fullness of the wind or the earthquake or the fire, but rather in the emptiness of sheer silence. We too often experience God in the times of spiritual drought. What then are we supposed to do during these times of drought? Well, the wilderness is natural in in the life of faith. We can't just languish in a state of dehydration. Instead, we need to find ways to prepare for rain. Teresa of Avila, the patron saint who lived during the 16th century in Spain, wrote extensively on the topic of spiritual drought. In her autobiography, written sometime around the year 1567, she compares faith to a garden and prayer to water. She wrote that during our times of spiritual drought, we must continue to water our faith through prayer. Prayer must flourish before our faith can flourish. She points out how one waters a garden is not as important as simply making sure that the watering just gets done. Just as different plants need different amounts of water, we too need different types of spiritual refreshing. One way might work for you, but that way might not work for me. But what's important is that you just get out there and water. She gives four examples of watering. The first is fetching the water with a bucket. You may have to work day and night getting bucket after bucket, but the water will still get to the garden. This method method is for the person who needs to work hard through the drought, staying continually in prayer and in scripture, but she warns that there's a danger here for burnout. The second method is tapping a well and using a pump. That is, retreating deep into yourself to find the storehouses of faith. You don't have to go through all the work of retrieving bucket after bucket, but you run the risk of sucking the well dry. The third method is planting near a stream or a water source. For this method, method, we can tap into a community of faith that will act as the water that will nourish our soul. But the risk 
of this is finding a source that won't dry up and finding a source that doesn't stray from the living water. The last method is simply waiting for rain. While we need to remember that the rain comes in God's timing and not our own, Teresa of Avila says there's always a 100% chance of rain. We need to live our lives as though we believe the rain is coming by living our lives as though we believe in God's faithfulness and grace. Like Elijah, we all find ourselves at one time or another wandering in the wilderness, hoping for death. We want to experience, we experience the mountaintop and it still leaves us unchanged. We don't find God in the wind or in the earthquake or in the fire and even miss the presence of God in the sheer silence. But we can be sure that even in the driest of droughts, the promise of God's refreshing rain is imminent. When we find ourselves crying out, will it ever rain? Let us remember the words of Teresa of Avila and continue to prepare by placing out bowls and buckets and bins and trash cans because when the rain sweeps through, we'll want to catch as much of it as we can. Amen.